Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is Andres. In today's episode, The Riots Will Continue, we examine the expansion of the carceral state as a response to anti-racist movements and urban rebellions of the 1960s, the political economic underpinnings of these social transformations, and the ways in which historic instances of prisoner rebellion are continuous with present-day resistance behind bars and point towards upheavals yet to come. We speak with historian Heather Ann Thompson, author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy, and Dr. Austin McCoy, an organizer and historian who explores the relationship between urban political economy and social movements. We also talk with a dean whose son was recently transferred to Baraga Maximum Correctional Facility following an inciting a riot charge in the aftermath of the Kinross Rebellion. But first, here's David Langstaff with some news you may have missed. The Denver Contract Detention Facility is currently being sued for human rights abuse and violation of labor law after forcing thousands of detained immigrants to work for just $1 per day. Inmates were threatened with solitary confinement if they refused to work. The lawsuit, originally filed in 2014, has just acquired class action status. On February 27th, Ohio prisoners Sadiq Abdullah Hassan and Jason Robb began a hunger strike after officials at the Ohio State Penitentiary suspended their phone and email access for 90 days. Prison officials accused the men of accepting compensation to appear without authorization on an episode of the Netflix show Captive. The episode covered the 1993 prison rebellion known as the Lucasville Uprising. Hassan and Robb, who argue their role in the rebellion was to negotiate a peaceful ending, were pegged as two of its leaders and sentenced to death for the killing of a corrections officer. And on March 2nd, for the second time in two years, a Nebraska prisoner rebellion succeeded in taking control of a portion of a Tecumseh maximum security state prison after an estimated 40 inmates refused to return to their cells. Two prisoners were killed in the midst of the upheaval. See news from the streets at rustbeltradio.org for links to these news items. I'm Cave Syed here with A. Maria, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. In this show, we amplify the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explore ongoing work in our movement to abolish the carceral state. Co-producer Alejo Stark and I recently spoke with Dr. Heather Ann Thompson, author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. She spent 10 years uncovering histories of the rebellion that were deliberately kept from the public, including the organizing that led to the uprising and the violent state repression that followed it. She connects the ways in which radical political groundswells in cities like Detroit were repressed through criminalization of their base, as well as the ways in which those political movements were connected to historic and ongoing organizing behind bars. My name is Heather Ann Thompson, and I'm a historian, but I'm someone who also works on the present-day implications of the carceral state, punishment, control, containment, and I work on cities like Detroit, but also on prisons. My last book was on the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971, both as a means to rescue a story that has really been distorted by state actors, but also to think about the ways in which previous 
this prison uprisings might inform both how we got here in terms of the current prison crisis, but also what might happen to undo the current prison crisis, what lessons exist from the past in terms of organizing, and frankly, uh, repression that we need to be aware of today when we think about dealing with today's prison crisis. Can you briefly describe uh, the history of incarceration of this prison crisis in Michigan in particular, and maybe more broadly, the Rust Belt? When you talk about the history of incarceration, there's sort of a meta story, a large story about the criminalization of blackness and brownness from the very, very beginning of the colonization of this country, but even the foundation of this country as the United States of America. There's always been a tendency to use containment, whether it's prisons or reservations or boarding schools or any number of things, as a means to use the carceral state to control and maintain power for whoever the governing body is at the time. Always white people, but depending on the city, depending on the place, different people. But the current carceral crisis that we are now in has a very unique dimension, which is that it has many features of the past, which is that it's deeply racialized and it disproportionately has has ensnared poor people, but the sheer scale of it is something that is quite new. And the sheer scale of it is what I was interested in locating. And there's many, many drivers that historians have located as why we get this. But one of the most important is that we get a real freedom struggle in the 1960s. African-Americans, but not only African-Americans, certainly Chicano students and, you know, Native American activists, and it goes on and on. And there's no question that we begin a war on crime, the one that will manifest itself in incarceration that we see today. We began a war on crime in response to that, in response to the social unrest and protest. And indeed, we began this war on crime well before there was a crime crisis. Started in 1965, it was Lyndon Johnson. He was very specifically responding to the riots, quote unquote, but we would call them rebellions that took place in Philadelphia, Rochester, Harlem. And once we started to connote urban unrest with criminality and disorder with criminality, it was a slippery slope uh, upwards that we then began to police cities in much more intensely. And very quickly over the course of the 60s, and certainly after 1972, there's this dramatic incarceration in America that is confined primarily to major inner cities. Detroit was one of those inner cities. And And incarceration came to Detroit particularly aggressively because by the time we begin the war on crime, Detroit was also in the midst of its own demographic shift. After its rebellion in 67, and certainly after it got a black mayor in 73, Detroit becomes an overwhelmingly black city. There's still a large Latino population, but it's overwhelmingly an African-American city. And so incarceration came there with a particular vengeance. And indeed, for Michigan, Again, Detroit became the feeder, along with some other largely black and poor cities like Flint or Pontiac, become the major feeders for the Michigan prison system. In Michigan, what that looked like was over a very, very short period of time, Michigan builds 56 penal institutions, I believe is the number. It starts shipping people into those facilities from cities like Detroit and in doing so, taking 
census population to those upstate locations, which had a devastating effect on Detroit in particular, but again, also on places like Flint or Pontiac. And it literally meant that the next 40 years of Michigan's history that we think about through the lens of deindustrialization, or we think about it through a sort of a rust belt lens, it's not that that's not important. It is. And deindustrialization is important. Globalization is important. But what we've really missed is that the most devastating blow, or at least one of the most devastating blows that these cities experience is incarceration. Detroit really suffers when it loses its population to incarceration. Because, of course, incarceration tears at the social fabric of these cities at a whole different level even than job loss alone. What was at stake in 1971 when those inside Attica rose up, and what were their material demands? What was at stake at Attica was the same thing that was at stake in cities like Detroit or Buffalo or New York, and that was a complicated mix of material demands and needs that weren't being met and an absolute sense that black and brown bodies were dispensable and subjugated and that there was something about this moment that gave folks a feeling that activism was merited, of course, but would net something, right, that would actually bring something different. So when it was in a city like Detroit, taking over the newspaper, the South End, or erupting in the city streets, or creating organizations like Parents and Students for Community Control, that was all the same thing that was driving the Attica brothers to resist the conditions of their confinement. The main driver for most of the people in Attica was very materially driven. It was very basic, like you couldn't get parole without looking in an old phone book and writing to an employer. and Or you had parole, but you couldn't get out until you had a job. And you were being fed on 63 cents a day. And you had one square of toilet paper a day. And you couldn't see your children if you weren't married to their mother. And you could get no letters from home if you wrote in Spanish because those letters were thrown away. And so I think that sometimes as activists, we underestimate the power of the material demand. And somehow it gets minimized as less radical or pure or meaningful or significant or interesting. But it was, in fact, those very practical demands that took men, many of whom by their own omission had never considered themselves as political. And it brought them together at enormous odds with enormous risk and not only brought them together, but actually kept so many of them together for the next 40 years to tell their story. The politics, though, are important because those who had kind of articulated the demands beyond the material were those who were able to help those other guys frame what they were doing and to imagine that it wasn't just about the 63 cents a day. It was a broader question about why are you locked up in the first place and so forth and so on. And so I think it's, again, it's sort of like this question of racial capitalism and it's a question of drivers. It it isn't either or. And I think it really is important when we think about these questions to not minimize what we think is not radical enough and instead to think about how do these things in fact work together all the time to in fact build a movement or make something very powerful. We've been talking about this, what you call a cocktail of the, the rebellions at Folsom, San Quentin, Attica, and Auburn. And now we stand decades later in the largest prison strike in the history of the United States in September 9, 2016. What do you make of these two flashpoints? And what does it mean for the short term and long term? 
I think that it is really, really significant what happened in September of 2016 on the 45th anniversary of Attica. It was significant on a number of levels. It was significant because, again, institutions across the country, just like it happened in 71 or 70 and 71, erupt at the same time, and that prisoners in multiple institutions in various locales are speaking the same language of what they need and taking real action to demand what they need. And those flashpoints have interesting things in common. On the one hand, they are motivated by a real intensification of repression. And in 1971, just like in 2016, these were moments when the tensions within prisons had reached a real fever pitch. They were severe overcrowding. It was, in both cases, on the heels of this sort of new intensification of policing that had led to these prisons being intensely overpopulated. And it was a particularly racialized jump in prison populations. These are both kind of happening in both of these moments. I actually think that this is just the beginning. I mean, I think that we are on the eve of a lot more protests. And it will be very interesting to see what it means now that we've also had this political shift shift nationally in the White House. You know, what will that mean? Because this is a similar shift to when we get, you know, I mean, hell, Nixon looks like a complete lefty compared to Trump. But but it is an interesting similarity. And the repression that rains down on Attica, my fear, of course, is that that can happen again in the Trump era. But on the other hand, the Attica brothers don't go away. And clearly the men in Kinross and the women at these facilities in Kansas and the scores and scores of undocumented families and nobody's going to go away. So it's just a question of really looking at the past so that hopefully next time around, one of the greatest human rights struggles does not get told by the state and does not get spun by the state because the consequences of that were devastating. It meant that a generation of people never understood what had happened at Attica, both to the good, meaning what organizational strengths were in there, what led to it, what brought people together. They didn't learn about the legal defense. They didn't learn anything. But one thing that the state learned or taught everybody was the prisoners are animals. That's all they learned, right? Quote, unquote, learned. And so we need to learn our history if we're in one of those moments again. And I think we are in one of those moments again. So you wouldn't be surprised to hear a historian say history matters. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you so much. We talked with Dr. Austin McCoy about his work on how the political economic crisis of racial capitalism and the processes of automation, that is, the replacement of workers by machines, led to the formation of the Rust Belt and the age of mass incarceration. We also discuss how these crises have led to our contemporary moment, and what may be a path forward towards ending mass incarceration. Perhaps, until these fundamental social contradictions are resolved, the riots will continue, both behind and beyond prison walls. My name is Austin McCoy. I am a historian. I study social movements in the 20th century, especially after the 1970s movements in the Midwest around you know, issues of like war and empire, deindustrialization, and police killings. But I'm also an organizer. I've done community organizing, campus organizing work around issues of racial justice, uh, organizing around the Oral Rosser killing a couple of years ago, organizing against white supremacists, you know, so like those are like basically been my main roles. Can you begin by briefly describing the political economy of the Rust Belt? The Rust Belt is these states and these uh, regions and these cities and rural areas, right, that have uh, deteriorated uh, manufacturing bases mostly, and 
you know, when I typically think of the Rust Belt, like it'll extend from, you know, northern New York and through the Midwest, you know, and even like reaching places like Oakland, uh, California. And the places that I study, like the Midwest, so thinking about Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin to a degree, and Minnesota, you know, I think of heavy manufacturing as opposed to the textile industry on the East Coast. Manufacturing, you know, automobiles, tires, you know, so rubber, steel, appliances, you know, like the Midwest, you know, like its manufacturing base was already sort of on the upswing, you know, in the 1920s, but then by the 19, you know, after the Depression, the state invests in World War II, and that sort of like picks up auto production, steel production, rubber, et cetera, in, you know, cities like Detroit, obviously, with you know, Akron, Ohio, Youngstown, my hometown of Mansfield, Ohio. Uh, like, so you get like bases of manufacturing around those industries. And starting in the 1950s, uh, you get General Motors and all these other like multinational corporations who begin to move factories and plants from the cities to the suburbs, and then eventually from the suburbs to, to the southern states, which were mostly right to work. But then also, right, you'd have multinational corporations. So they're always investing, opening up markets and production overseas. But then also automation, which has like been a big conversation, you know, in the midst of the election. You know, like you have, you know, now President Trump, unfortunately, appealing to like, you know, disaffected mostly white, but you know, there's still obviously like a multiracial working class that came out of the manufacturing belt uh, in the Midwest, especially Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, right? Like these places that he won, these factories had left because of mostly automation, even though he typically would blame trade. You know, even though trade deals have something to do with it, it's mostly capitalists controlling technology and investment and being able to use that against workers. And well, are these jobs coming back? I mean, I've had that conversation before with white folks in the Midwest. Even back when Obama was elect, people have been voting for people who they believe will, quote unquote, bring the jobs back. And no one tells them that these jobs aren't coming back. So then the next question becomes, what do we do? The response to that is, well, what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to be able to live in a society where you can be productive in the ways that you feel like you, you want to be productive, but then that is willing to invest in the public good? You also recently, the part of this dossier uh, on Cedric Robinson, the great mm-hmm. black intellectual that wrote yeah. like Marxism and right. many other texts. Uh, and he's often uh, cited as the one who talks about racial capitalism, right? mm-hmm. which as uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, is also not just uh, part of capitalism is all of capitalism. Right. How do we understand uh, the ways in which Sir Robinson talks about racial capitalism in relation to uh, these processes that you just described? Right. You know, the concept of racial capitalism places slavery, you know, systems of enslavement and conquest at the center of global political economy. We're thinking about the ways in which race and class, racism and capitalism are in- inextricably linked and thinking about the ways in which Black populations, but not only black populations, but uh, native populations, brown populations have been exploited, have been forced to participate in the construction of global capital. When you start to think about it coming through the present, right, like it's, there's always the policing of othered populations. And I think with these crises that occur, whether they're political or economic, you know, there's still these populations that have been marked since settler colonialism, since slavery, that are always getting policed and policed now in ways in which since they're, you know, most of these folks aren't slaves or even um, 
needed for the economy can just be warehoused. You can think about the prison industrial complex, for instance, as like a, a modern manifestation in that sort of tradition of racial capitalism. So essentially the black urban proletariat is incarcerated. Yeah. And the white rural proletariat is hired on as prison guards over the incarcerated. Yeah. Can you talk about how this helps us to understand the Trump election and the political <laughs> conditions we're facing now? I mean, mass incarceration obviously is a negative effect on, if we're talking about representative democracy as we have it, right? Like it's a, it's a negative effect on, you know, the Democrats, like the other party, right? You know, so like the more folks who are incarcerated, those folks can count towards representation in red districts because that's where a lot of prisons are built and stored. And it drains the population, you know, from these urban centers. But then also, right, mass incarceration, when you talk about the urban proletariat, it's been a base for organizing for a, you know, for a long time, right? Whether we're talking about, you know, there were slaves who were working in cities, or you're talking about folks who, like, you know, the Great Migration, folks moving to Chicago, or even to just like Birmingham, right? Black folks, black workers in cities have always been a base. And mass incarceration, political repression, basically, like, killed that. Helped to contribute to the demobilization of black radical politics in general for the last 40 years. You know, I think if we were to have a, if we had stronger labor movement, you know, we had a stronger black, you know, radical politics, uh, you know, like we might not be talking about a Trump presidency in some ways, uh, because like you had, like you would have these movements that would be able to create their own sorts of uh, spaces of of politics or political autonomy or political power. The absence of like these, these strong movements, and I think we're starting to see the presence of them now. But you know, almost too late when we talk about electoral politics within the system we have it. You know, so yeah, like you get, you know, white folks who are living in these rural areas, either working in agriculture, you know, if they're lucky, or, you know, working in these prison populations who begin, to, who are feeling dis- more disaffected by the year, whether it's because of loss of jobs, whether it's because, you know, they perceive the Democratic Party as, you know, against their interests, which they are, <laughs> you know, like to be completely frank, but they believe that nationalism xenophobia, racism in some ways um, become a sort of default setting for some of these folks where it's like, well, here's a candidate who's basically promising us jobs, promising like secure borders, you know, quote unquote, really promising a stronger foreign policy, quote unquote, promising all the things that we believe that we weren't getting under Obama administration, you know, so let's let's vote for him and what's ironic is some of the a lot of the social problems that black folks are sort of like suffering when it comes to like drug use poverty extended to white folks in these rural areas you know heroin use is like up overdoses right i mean like even like in you know just this feeling of that their power is shrinking they're no longer the center you know but then they're also suffering led them to trump one of the solutions, as it were, maybe that you provide yeah. in, in, in the yeah. article, you say from mass incarceration to mass employment. Yeah. How, how do you think that's, um, that can be done and what would that entail? Well, there's like really there's two options, obviously. I, I think mass employment or even just a guaranteed income and the guaranteed income, when you really think about it, might be a little more realistic in some ways, you know, because it's not relying on creating a whole lot of jobs. Either sort of solution is obviously going to depend upon whether or not, you know, you can build, like, you'd have to build a mass politics around it, you know, and that would include being able to make the argument for this, 
that doesn't fall into the sort of red baiting trap that any sort of like state investment in its people or in the public you know sector and the public good often falls into and you know we might be heading there you know like i mean as like folks like begin to learn that well the uh the economic and racial nationalist concept of trade and politics doesn't work with trump what else is there going to be you know what's going to be left is like folks who are going to be folks on the left uh, arguing for either massive jobs programs you know, which might be the, you know, the next best thing that we can do if, it, you know, but, you know, anytime that the federal government wants to do anything that has to do with the public good, like it's, you know, smeared as communists or socialists or mass incomes, guaranteed incomes. I mean, and which is something that, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King even advocated for many times, especially towards the end of his life. If you can't give jobs, you give people income. We now turn to Aideen, whose son was recently transferred to Paraga Maximum Correctional Facility after being charged with inciting a riot in the aftermath of the September 2016 Kinross Rebellion. Aideen's story provides a window into just one instance of the widespread state repression that has been deployed in the wake of the largest prison strike in U.S. history. Alejo spoke with her about her son's situation. Hey, my name is Aideen, and I live in Flint, Michigan. I'm Reginald mother, and he went to prison in 1989 when he had just turned 19 years old, and he'd been in there ever since. Now, you know, what had happened to Ken Ross, he said that they said that he incited a riot, which I don't believe, and he said he didn't do it. But then he, they had shipped him up Baraga prison up there, and I guess that's maximum, maximum security. Right. He told me in his letter in December the 28th, 2016, you know, he was up there. And when he got up there, he was weighing 285 pounds. And he dropped down to 185 pounds because he thought they was putting something in his food and stuff so he wouldn't eat. Eat the food. He only ate the stuff that was wrapped up in packages. And he had asked them to, you know, give him, you know, other stuff, but they didn't. What are your concerns with your son? When's the last time you heard from him? I got two letters from him about two weeks ago. And I'm worried because, you know, as long as he wasn't in, you know, they didn't have him knocked down, he would be writing. And he calls me. He calls me a lot because, you know, I call, I accept all his calls. Since all this happened, it's like it's firing in between when I hear him, I'd be sending him about five or six letters, and and he was supposed to call me March the 1st. Well, I ain't heard from him, and that's what I'm concerned about. I, I'm, I'm not hearing from him. He's in administrative segregation, potentially in, in the hole, as they say. It's nerve-wracking to me because, hey, you know, that's my child up there. If you could ask anything or tell anything to the director of corrections, you know, Heidi Washington, she's the head of the Michigan Department of Corrections, what, what would you ask her? What would you tell her? I would tell her that my son, um, you know, he finished up his um, school in there, and he was trying to get into another program, which I guess they ain't been letting him get in the program that he could get in. It's a couple of programs that he wanted to get in, and I needed to tell her that she needs to investigate and find out why can't he get in some of these programs that he's been trying to get into. Take a look at his own. Um, the reasons why they're taking away his typewriter, 
his watch, and his iPod, you know, and they need to start rehabilitating them prisoners better because, you know, they should, the reason they got so many of them going back, repeated offenders, is because they don't, they, they really don't rehabilitate them like they should, you know. They just throw them in there, and they need to get more programs going on in there for them. If you could tell your son anything, what would you tell him? If you could speak to him right now. I tell him, you know, to do what it is he got to do so he can come up out of there. Because he hasn't been in there too long. He hasn't been in there, what, 26, 27 years? Well, thank you so much for, for your time, Medine. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, okay, and I really appreciate y'all taking interest in it. In, in his case, and you be blessed and have a blessed day. Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. The lessons from the rebellions of the 1960s, the Attica uprising, and last fall's nationwide prison strike teach us that as long as the conditions are unlivable, the riots will continue. As long as the carceral state and racial capitalism continue to criminalize, jail, exploit, and abuse, the riots will continue. And so long as we live in a society racial capitalism that benefits those who have everything over those who have nothing, the riots will continue, both inside and outside. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team, Andres, David Langstaff, A. Maria, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. 